Good morning. Today's reading is from Revelation 5, 8 through 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and, and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Thanks, Sherry. Good morning, church. Good to be with you all. And hello again. Uh, My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to get into God's Word with you. In our text today, Revelation 4 through 5, I hope you'll see with me a glimpse of the heavenly reality, a picture of the way the world really is, more than what you see around us, a greater truth. Yes, it'll be through imagery and symbols, but they all point to one thing, one true reality, that Jesus is victorious, that he is glorious, and our right response to that God is one of worship. I think we'll see a vision of worship that leads us to a call to worship. Worship is central to this passage, and as I think we'll see today, central to our day-to-day lives. If we think worship only happens when Caleb and the band and Ashley get up here and lead us, we need to zoom way, way out. There's a bigger picture happening. Yes, on Sundays, when we sing, we join an eternal song that started long before we started singing it and will continue long after we're done here. Worship is an all-of-life kind of thing, not just a Sunday kind of thing. I got my glasses, I think, in kindergarten. My mom's right here. Is that right? Kindergarten? Somewhere in there? Maybe younger? Okay. You know you're really blind if you get them in kindergarten. Like, I'm just learning to speak. Right, kindergartners? Anyway, and I say, I can't see. I can't see anything, Mom. Um, Yes, I had all the fun stuff happen to me. You get hit in the face with dodgeballs. That's a real thing, by the way. They get knocked off at concerts. They get broken in half, and so you have to tape them back together. Like, glasses wears, you know what I'm talking about, right? Can I get an amen? You know how it goes. Sometimes you just can't get a new pair just yet. And now both my kids have glasses. Poor things. When I was younger, my prescription would change all the time, getting worse and worse and worse. And every time I get a new pair of glasses, it would be like seeing the world again for the first time. Be like, this is what the world looks like? It's, I'm going to date myself here, but do you remember many of you when you got your first HD TV? And you're like, wait, what? I didn't know TV can look like this. So much detail. It's like that. It's get a new prescription every time it go, wow, I can't believe the world really looks like this. 
And glasses, people, you know when your prescription changes a lot, the ground underneath you looks like round in front of you. You know what I'm talking about? You non-glasses people, you don't get it. We get it. I think our verses today are a little like that. A new prescription through which to see the world, to see it rightly in HD as it were. And through the lens of this glorious new set of frames, through this lens of worship, we can now look at the things around us with new clarity. You see, in this world, we don't have a cultural problem. We have a worship problem. We worship the wrong things. We don't have an identity problem, spousal problems, money problems. We have right or worthy worship problems. Now, by worship, I mean how the Bible describes it, is that when we worship, we ascribe or acknowledge worth or value to that thing or person that we are worshiping. And we worship all the time, all the time, but not always rightly. During worship, let's take Sunday mornings, for example, one or two of us, I've done it maybe once, okay, we've all, maybe we've all done this. During Sunday worship, we stand back and we kind of just observe what's happening. We're not like in it, we're just kind of watching the drummer and What's the bassist up to? Oh, that was a sweet line. Drummer missed that beat there. Picking on Zach now. Right? We, we stay a level of disconnected here. Even outside of Sundays, we worship or think of things as more valuable than they should be. We worship comfort in times of suffering, not the God of all comfort, as he calls himself. We tend to worship security, preferring that over the God who's already secured the victory for us. We want to talk to the smartest person in the room because maybe they'll know what to do rather than talking in prayer to a sovereign God who's in control of all things. Infinite knowledge. We worship our ability to solve our own problems with money and our managerial skills, our work ethic, but isn't that really worshiping ourselves? Instead of the God who works all things for our good according to his riches and glory, right? We worship the wrong thing. And I hope and pray today that we will begin to imagine more and more areas of our lives where we can worship instead of worry. Have a knee jerk of worship instead of getting angry. Worship instead of wonder, what do we do next? Putting our very best work the best we have, all of the best, on the easel, not on the easel to admire, but on the altar in worship. Looking instead through this lens, this new lens of worship, asking, what does it look like to worship God in this situation, in this moment? How can I ascribe the value of God in this situation? So with all that said, let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, that's our prayer. We, we ask you humbly, Lord, would you show us how to worship you rightly, how to worship you in a worthy way, Lord, to ascribe the infinite value to you as this picture of heaven will show us. And Lord, would we leave that, not, not, not leave that here, but bring that with us into our areas of work and our homes, asking that question through that new lens, how can we worship you in this moment, Lord? How can we live out this heavenly reality even now, even when things seem dark? In Jesus' name, amen. We have the joy and privilege of looking at Revelation 4 through 5, two chapters, and we're going to read it all in the book of Revelation today.
Revelation, interestingly, there are more Old Testament references in Revelation than any other New Testament book. It's one of the reasons this book is so special and unique. And now as we've gotten into the book, we're past the letter portion. Chapters 1 through 3 is the letter. Right now, that, that's probably more familiar to us. A lot of the New Testament is written in letter form. We, we see that and we have a framework for it. But now we're getting into the more prophetic and poetic imagery stuff, the apocalyptic stuff. Things are going to start to get a little more phantasmical, if I can use that word. You may have wondered in our, in our series slide, what is this creature up here? What is going on with this? We're going to meet our little friend up here today. We're going to meet him. And Frank reminded us on week one, this book is all about preparing, not predicting. So we got to remember that as we get into this imagery stuff. We are to prepare for a future reality that has begun now with Christ. For those Christians here, we are the welcoming committee for this reality. Now, we're not to spend our time calculating predictions, looking through the minutia of every image here as if there's a big code that we can crack. But we're also not to ignore the images that are being presented either. Now, structurally, chapters 4 through 5 serve to invite us in to see the bigger picture. That's, that's what we're doing today. It's like a glimpse through a doorway into a heavenly reality. In fact, that's how our text begins, with this door being opened. Now, real quick before we read, we are covering two chapters today. And in order to do that, we got to fly over it. We can't get on the ground and look at every tree and rock. So that comes with pros and cons, right? We can keep that big picture in mind more easily. But all that to say, if there are things that you see that you're like, man, I wish you would have talked more about that. I have questions here, questions there. Make a note, circle them, write them down. The point is you, you should follow up with those things with your RC leader or staff or pastors. We'd all love to talk doctrine, theology with you, particularly Pastor Trey, if you know him. So talk to him if you have any of those questions. Okay. Open doors. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Let's pause there real quick. Notice, he's not really trying to clearly describe the one who is seated on the throne. It's as if he defies description, defies logic. So he's going to define, well, this is what it looks like around the throne. It's interesting here. And so this cast of characters we have, John's going to start by zooming in on the center. That's the first thing he sees, is this throne, the seat of authority and power. And now as we read, he's going to zoom out and zoom out and zoom out and show you more of what's surrounding this throne. So the cast of characters so far is we have John, we have Jesus, who's speaking, saying, come up here, let me show you something. John is in the spirit and he sees the one on the throne, God. So we have the Trinity and John so far. Now when we go into the door, we see beautiful, colorful jewels of green, jasper, and red carnelian. Yes, I had to look up what carnelian even is and how to say carnelian. 
And then we have some kind of rainbow shimmering emerald around the throne. Now, although the rainbow, is, it serves to remind us of the covenantal nature of our God, the scene being painted here is meant to leave you with this sense of just awe and beauty. That's, that's the main idea here. We're supposed to walk away from this part going, wow, this sounds like an indescribably beautiful place. And that's, that's the point. So in fact, this scene in Revelation 4 through 5 is an echo both of Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1 through 2. So if you wanted to read those three together, what you get is a fuller picture of what's happening here in this throne, what that throne looks like. The three of them kind of comment on one another. The point is the throne is an overwhelmingly beautiful and terrifying place of power. We're going to see more of that language as we keep reading. Verses 4 through 6, he starts to zoom out. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. This is the the terror of the throne. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So as he zooms out, he sees around the throne, we have 24 more thrones with 24 elders dressed in white, golden crowns on their head. More phantasmically pictures of thunder and lightning and painting this, this complex picture. And then we have seven torches of fire, which it says are the seven spirits of God. Okay, and I'm lost, just like that. Seven torch spirits of God. What Bible is this all of a sudden? What's happening? And who are these 24 elders? I didn't know that in heaven there's 25 thrones. There's just a lot of thrones in heaven. What's going on? Now, you might see that and go, see, this is why I don't read Revelation. Because this is confusing. What do I do with this? How does this impact day to day? So just pause. I just want to acknowledge that for a second. And, and say, we're going to get there, so don't worry. But if you haven't discovered this already, you might find that an ESV study Bible is really helpful for moments like these. Because it's not going to tell you everything. You'd have to read as many commentaries as Frank and I have read, which maybe you don't have the time or money to do that. But the ESV study Bible is going to give you at least enough to know what's happening. Here's what, here's what it says about the 24 elders. They symbolize the unity of God's people. The unity of God's people. How? Encompassing the Old Testament Israel, led by the heads of the 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, there's half. And the New Testament church, led by the 12 apostles of the early church. So we have Israel's church and the new church, together unified, praising Jesus. So the implication here is that in heaven, there's total unity between not just Jews and Gentiles, although that was a hot-button issue at the time, but all people, because Jews and Gentiles is Jews and everyone that's not a Jew, the whole, whole humanity. The fullness of Israel and the fullness of Jesus' followers together worshiping God. Now you see the bigger picture. Tools like the ESV Study Bible can be really helpful. Today's sermon is brought to you by the ESV Study Bible. 
a ministry of Crossway Publishing serving Christians since... No, you get the idea. Now, as far as the seven torches go, again, here we have a symbol of fullness. Remember, seven is an invitation to consider fullness, perfection, totality of the Spirit sent into the world. We know this because fire is often used to represent the presence of God, the Spirit of God. And specifically in the book of Acts, when the Spirit is sent out, he shows up as a wind and a fire. So just to illustrate again, you have access to finding these answers. It's not as scary as it seems. When you read a challenging book like Revelation, we might be tempted to avoid it because what do I do with all of this? But just to illustrate again, you have, you have access to these. Here's what the ESV Study Bible says about the torches, the seven spirits. Revelation pre- presents the Holy Spirit as one person, but he also appears as seven spirits. Why? Because the seven represents perfection. And as seven torches of fire, and as we'll see in chapter 5, verse 6, seven eyes to express something about the Spirit, his omnipresence, his omniscience. So every time the Spirit is mentioned in this sevenfold way, it's communicating something, some truth about the Spirit, how he works, who he is. Remember, the Spirit is a person after all. So one translation, I think it was the New Living Translation, called it the sevenfold Spirit of God, which might be more helpful for us as we read. So John has started to zoom out. He continues zooming out with his cast of characters. He started with the throne, the seat of power, and the elders around the throne, the whole people of God unified. Now he continues in verses 6 through 8. And be, let's see. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, by the way, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. This is the first of five songs in these two chapters. Five songs. I told you worship is a main idea here. It's amazing to me that when we sing that song, we have many songs that include those same words. When we sing those songs, we are joining in the literal song of heaven. That's, that's amazing. Every nation, every, every tongue... Every created thing singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But not just that song, because we have four more songs and they're new, they're different. The point is when we worship, we join in the song of heaven. When we don't worship, when we forget, when we fail to worship God, guess what? That song still goes. It's still happening. God's glory is being proclaimed. He's being worshiped still. Praise God for that. And yes, we met our strange little winged creature friend here on the screen. We know now he's one of these four creatures whose job it is to sing the praises of God. Now, there's all kinds of imagery representing, basically saying, this is all of creation. 
Every created thing is worshiping God together. And all the symbolism and all that is one of those rabbit trails that I just won't take today. I wish I could. It's not because it's overwhelming or scary. It's just time. We have a lot more to cover. So here's the point of the creatures, though. They're covered in eyes. They're all seeing. All of this comes from Ezekiel 1. Think of this like a strange heavenly quartet. But all of them never cease, never cease saying this pronouncement of the perfect holiness of this eternal God. The point that we're seeing now as he's zooming out is that all people and all creatures are shown centered around the throne of God. Now, if we keep reading, we'll see not just what's happening, but why. Why is this happening and and what does this mean? Verses 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give honor, uh, sorry, give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, whenever they do that, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns down before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the second song. But it's more than just a song, isn't it? It's worship. Look at the worth, look at the value they're ascribing to God. They're proclaiming to God glory and honor and power, all glory, all honor, all power. So from all peoples on the earth represented here, being overwhelmed by the song of the creatures, it compels them to fall down over and over every time. So the creatures never cease singing this, and the elders, every time they sing it, fall down and sing this song. So they cast their crowns. Isn't that interesting language? Frank talked about it when we started our service. Casting their crowns down. I think this is an important thing that we do when we worship. When we worship God, aren't we casting our crowns before him? What are our crowns, our accomplishments, our gifts, our power, our wealth, our wisdom? What are they in light of this picture of the throne? They're worthless. We cast those down. We give those as a fragrant offering before this kind of God. That's, that's what's happening here. We'll talk more about that later. Chapter 5 continues describing what John sees through this door of heaven. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Not a quiet single tear. He's weeping loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John begins weeping loudly. That's like a full-blown ugly cry in the presence of all these elders and creatures and they're watching going, that's awkward. He's just full-blown ugly crying. Get your stuff together. 
The mighty angel calls out, who is worthy and nothing? Awkward silence. Like Thanksgiving dinner when grandma says, who would like to pray? And everyone just looks down. Like, you know, if I don't make eye contact with you, you won't call me. We know the game. Right? What you need to do in those moments is just have a pastor in your family because then forever and always, for all time, well, let's just have the pastor pray for the meal, right? That's what you need to do. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this next time. I'm going to say, Grandma, oh, I'm not worthy. Not worthy. Sorry. Let's see if that works. I'll let you know. No, no one was found worthy, and John loses it. I want to spend a little time here because I want to make sure we understand why John is so upset. I see two main reasons here. One, this, was, this moment, the opening of the scroll, was long awaited. The book of Daniel, written hundreds of years prior, a book that would have been very familiar to John and to the Jewish readers, that book ends with a scroll being sealed up and not opened. And Daniel, being nosy, says, well, what's in that one? And Jesus says, no, you can't know what's in that one. And that's it. That's how it ends. You don't get to know that one. So the moment John saw this scroll, he, he knew right what it was. The Jewish readers would have said, oh, I know what that is. His understanding of the scrolls were this, and this is important, that they were God's revealing of his will and his purpose, his promises to the world. And these are secrets that no one knows. Nobody knows what's this going to be. And it's right there. John can see it, but he can't look inside. To be so close, but so far, to want to know God's will so badly, but not getting an answer, that's a feeling we can all relate to, right? God, what is your will here? Imagine seeing the answer right there, but you can't read it. That's the tension he's feeling. It's so close, but so far. And now that long-awaited scroll seems doomed to remain sealed. John also feels, number two, I think, a personal despair. Obviously, he's crying. He knows his own heart, like we know ours. If an angel came today and said, who is worthy here? We'd all do the, not me, probably Frank, I guess, or be our best shot, but maybe not even him, right? So he knows that if, if an angel calls out, he, he knows he's not worthy. We know we're not. Without the revealed promises of God of grace and mercy, we have no hope to join this picture of heaven. I think that's what he's feeling is despair, hopelessness. Eugene Peterson has a book on uh, a commentary on Revelation called Reverse Thunder. It's really helpful. It's, it's a little older. It's from the late 80s, but so helpful. He's got such a poetic way of thinking. Here's what he says about this moment right here. He says upon hearing about hearing the word of God, no matter how splendid the throne and how numerous the elders and creatures, there is no assurance that I am included And so the consequence is despair, enough to make a person weep. It's not enough to see the glorious throne, hear the wondrous songs, and realize the vast inclusions, all the creatures and humanity there. If I don't don't discover that they include me, I will not praise but weep. If I can't see myself among those who throw their crowns in reckless joy, shouting, 
I can only hang my head and weep. Seeing heaven without being offered heaven, that's why John's weeping. He's watching, but now he's, he sees, well, I'm an outsider here. I'm not being invited any further in. So he weeps. Now let's read verses 5 through 10. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, the spark of hope and joy in John's heart of hearing this. Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, normal looking lamb, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Church, you and I, that last little bit there, you and I, followers of Jesus here today, are given a reigning role in the inaugurated kingdom of God. What an insane promise, privilege. The angel says, hang on, John, don't despair yet. There is one worthy. Check out this lion over here. So John, here's a description of a lion. He's looking for a lion, but what does he see? For the first time, it seems like, a slain lamb, a pathetic-looking creature compared to a lion, right? I think what's fascinating here is it seems like this lamb has been there all along and that John is just now noticing, oh, there's a, yeah, there's a lamb there. This lamb that was overlooked, unnoticed, he's the one that's worthy to open the scroll. Another thing I don't want to miss here, notice what the elders are holding in verse 8. They each hold a harp. You should see Joe Ponce's harp abilities. It's, it's amazing. He, he can play the harp like none other. He and Frank in our elder meetings do this kind of dueling harp thing. It's amazing to see. People are like, are he, is he joking? I don't know. I, <laughs> I am. These elders, yes, they're representing their people. They have a harp, but what else do they have? They have a golden bowl full of the fragrant prayers of the saints. Church, those are, those are your prayers and my prayers in this bowl. Remember, church, here, your prayers are not wasted. They're never wasted. They're not forgotten. They're kept. They're precious. Don't they sometimes feel like they just go into the void sometimes when we pray? We're like... Well, okay, that's out there somewhere now. This is where they are. They're precious. They're not forgotten. They're held out as a part of this worship service to God. That's amazing. This is the third song. 
Now, what's shocking about the third song is the subject swap of the song. It's no longer to the one on the throne, but to the slain lamb. That's shocking. This bloodied lamb, what a crazy image this is. This all-seeing, all-powerful, slain and bloodied lamb takes the scroll from the hand of God, being worthy. And the creatures and the elders, they bow down, they praise him. They praise him as God, singing to him. And they even say the same words, worthy are you. Not now used on the throne, but used to the lamb. The lamb, of course, is Jesus. His blood that was shed, his blood that's visible on him, is the blood that he shed for you and I, establishing and inaugurating the church. This is why he's worthy. He saved all people from all time and brought about the kingdom. That's what makes him worthy. Now, John zooms out again to show us an even larger picture. This is him zooming now all the way out to a picture of what surrounds this throne scene. And he gives us the fourth and fifth songs in verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, the list keeps going, and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down again and worshipped. The fourth and fifth songs include ultimate praise, ascribing ultimate value in worship to the slain Lamb and to the one on the throne now. It's not just the creatures anymore. It's not just the elders, but a host of heavenly angels singing the same song of praise. Now, try not to picture the hallmark winged kind of feathery looking angels. These are created beings that are the messengers of God. That's how they're used. And they're giving us a message here today that God is more powerful, more glorious, more loving, more victorious than we can imagine. And so, yes, we take our crowns. What are they in light of this kind of kingly rule? Our crowns, the best we can offer, our victories, our glories, our strength, our power, our love, our status, our everything, and we cast it at the feet of the throne. What are they in light of this scene? Puts things into perspective. In verse 13, zooms all the way out. We see all creation, everything now, creating and in creation joining this song. I can think of no better way to end than leaving you with that image. Zoomed all the way out. You see the throne in the center, but now all of the earth, everything in it, praising God. This is the real way of things, church. This is the true state of the world and the future. And worshiping God on Sundays together reminds us of that, yes. But in our day-to-day lives, church, don't bow your heart to anything else or anyone else. They're not worthy of that. 
Jesus' only direct words here today are at the beginning of chapter 4. If you have a red-letter Bible, the only red words in there are right at the top of 4. Jesus' only words today were, come up here. Let me show you the way things really are. Let me show you what's going to happen. And that's his call to you and I today in response. Come up here. Don't stand on the outside anymore like John, weeping as if this picture doesn't include you. Can't include you. You can't be part of that. As if this ultimate victory of the Lamb is not also your victory. Church, weep no more. The door of heaven stands open to you. Jesus is the door. He's the only door. Walk through it. Acknowledge him as Lord of your life. Ascribe worth and value to him more than your own crowns. Church, the victory of the Lamb over our sin and the sin of the world has been won once and for all by this lion lamb, the only one that was worthy. Let's pray. Worthy are you, Lamb of God who was slain, to receive power and wealth, to receive wisdom and might, to receive honor and glory and blessing, to receive our love. God, worthy are you of our love. To receive our praise, God, you're worthy. And to receive our very lives, Lord, we lay them down, we cast them down for you, God. You're worthy of all. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here with us now. And in the Trinity, the Lamb of God, this slain Lamb, is here in this room right now. Saying, come up here, come and see. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear how immeasurably worthy you are. Fill our hearts with that sense of awe and wonder, Lord, at who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.